disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. It's just been strange that they've done this. It doesn't make any sense. The reality is it doesn't fix the fact that they've got real problems. And we think there's ways to fix it if we were Disney. We think strategically they need to reposition ESPN and they need to diversify their business. And, you know, if you think back to 1995, they went out and they bought Cap City's ABC, which actually got them ESPN. That was a massive change for Disney. I'm surprised they're not looking for something to dramatically alter their business mix today. It's the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Come inside. It's fun inside. Unless, of course, you're bearish on Disney stock. That will get you blocked by the CEO on Twitter and quarterly earnings calls by Disney. Meet the guy on Wall Street taking on the Big Mouse House. Stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by the generous support of Elwood Thompson's customer empowerment, non-GMO, no advertising to children, really the best market in all of Virginia. You must try them out at the corner of Elwood's and Thompson's and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from New York, BTIG's Rich Greenfield, veteran Wall Street media and tech analyst. I've been reading his good research for 20 years now uh, since he and I first crossed pads back at Goldman Sachs at the turn of the century. How are you, good sir? I'm really great. I mean, the media space is going through some really major changes, and so it's been a very, very busy summer. I want to know what you know. I I, I want to know what's the beef with Disney. You've really been in the headlines most recently because Bob Iger, the very well paid, very powerful CEO of Disney, which owns ESPN, which has the theme parks, which has the the storied library uh, that's going to break away from Netflix in a few years, blocked you on Twitter. That's rather unprecedented. You know, look, our job is not to make friends with management teams. We're paid. And our job is to help investors, our clients who are investing in uh, the media and technology sector, our job is to help them make money. And so we're looking at what stocks we like and don't like. And we think Disney uh, is a stock that um, is overvalued principally because of their missteps on the cable network side. And we think when when Bob Iger and John Skipper, John Skipper, for your listeners, is the head of ESPN, when they were looking at sports rights, we think they substantially overpaid for things like the NBA, uh, continued it by buying more college football rights or college sports rights. And with the problem that's happened is that they have fixed contracts where they have to pay out to sports leagues, regardless of how many subscribers they have. And the problem is ESPN subscribers are going down. Advertising is weakening. Nobody's watching Sports Center anymore. Sport, the, the new Sports Center is Twitter. Uh, it's not, you know, tuning in at six o'clock or at midnight to watch Sports Center. And so, ratings are in trouble at ESPN, uh, especially for the non-live event programming. But their cost structure is largely fixed and growing. So, Rich, explain and this for me. It's almost like an underfunded liability or an unfund, underfunded pension that they have. All of these promises that they've made going out because they always thought up until recently in perpetuity that there'd be growth in uh, ESPN, which is the cash cow for Disney. They own a ABC. They own theme parks. They own a, a ton of things and cable networks, but they've been able to pass on ridiculous price increases year after year after year because it's the indispensable non-DVRable ESPN after all. I mean, whether you're talking about college football or NBA basketball or – or, Robin, uh, you just nailed it. I mean, you just, I, I think that comment of it was the bundle, right? So 
every listener you had, everyone who was subscribing to multi-channel television, and up until a few years ago, virtually everyone in America, 100 million homes, were subscribing to multi-channel television. And whether they ever watched ESPN or ESPN2, they were paying $8 a month as part of their cable bill, uh, if not more, to have ESPN there. That was an incredible business for ESPN. Not so great for consumers, especially if you didn't watch ESPN, but it was a great business for ESPN. And so I think ESPN is kind of the they're the poster child for over earning in the cable network era. And what's happening now and our criticism of Disney is that that business is starting to be dismantled by the rise of over the top on demand television. So Netflix, Amazon, you know, Apple's just beginning Obviously, you've seen massive rise in Facebook, in video. YouTube's obviously huge. Um, you know, all of that is contributing to less time spent watching television. I mean, ratings on TV are literally collapsing, especially for the younger and middle-aged demos. You know, older, the real old demos, meaning 65 plus, are still watching TV similar to what they used to. But all the other demos, ratings are collapsing, advertising softening, but also the less you watch the less propensity you have to subscribe to these big, expensive packages of television. They didn't see that coming. I mean, honestly, I think Iger, Skipper, they just didn't see this type of precipitous drop in ESPN subscribers coming. How can you not, though, if you poll any college kid, any – I hate to use the millennial term, but these people don't pay for cable. Uh, uh, these people who were born kind of in the disruption, who, who came of age, who became adults in the 2008-2009 era, this is just not a part of their worldview, the $108 a month thing and, and countenancing – you know, ridiculously above inflation price hikes every year from ESPN. So I, I don't understand. This is one of the biggest companies and media companies in the world. You would think it would have some modicum of, of prescience with this. I think what makes it even worse is that in many ways, the success of over-the-top TV was fueled by companies like Disney. I mean, there's probably no if, – if, if someone's going to write a book on, you know, how Netflix came to be, um, one of the key drivers is clearly the Walt Disney Company. I mean, not only did they give them access to their movies, uh, which I don't think was absolutely critical, but when you look at who sells the most content of any content company to Netflix, it's probably Disney. When you look across movies, all the Marvel TV shows, all the Disney animated catalog that's on there, you know, I think coming out next week or in two weeks is going to be Pocahontas and Mulan. I mean, there's a whole, there's just a ton of Disney content on Netflix. And so in many ways, Disney's helped create this Netflix monster that is now kind of wrecking havoc on the multi-channel ecosystem that they need to survive. And the reason, you know, you mentioned kind of our attack on Disney. The reason we focused on Disney is that unlike a lot of the other companies, Disney has by far the most dependence on the legacy bundle because they have this fixed cost structure that you mentioned this, you know, kind of, you called it an unfunded liability. I just think about it as they have commitments that they have to pay contingent. They're not, they're not contingent on anything. They are paying these payments out to the NFL, out to the NBA, regardless of how many subscribers they have. And so Disney's not going bankrupt. I mean, this is not a, do they have the cash to do it or the liquidity to do it? It's more of just, look, Disney's going to be a smaller business. ESPN is going to shrink. It's not going away. It's just going to be a smaller business. 
But investors in Disney expect growth. It's going to be very hard to grow when such a large piece of your company is in secular decline. You've had a sell rating on Disney shares since December of 2015. Previous to that, you rated it a buy from 2010 to early 2015, and you've been right on the stock. I mean, uh, it had a had a period, I think, a couple of years ago where there was a reckoning. There was a kind of 180-degree turn, like, wow, cord cutting is happening. We had Michael Wolf on the show a couple of uh, – uh, a couple of years ago, um, the stock has since fallen something like twenty percent, and I noticed that um, you were you were really raising your hand, and you posted a photo of yourself with an ESPN T-shirt, raising your hand on Twitter, saying, "We are in queue and ready for Disney's earnings call." You CC the Walt Disney Corporation and Bob Iger, and uh, you were not you're, you were not allowed to ask a question on that call. And then on top of that, you were blocked on Twitter. Well, look, I think that's what's so interesting. It's not like we've been wrong, right? I mean, you know, we're not causing the stock to go down. We're pointing out the challenges, and investors clearly have um, sold the stock, and you've seen Disney meaningfully underperform, not just its peers, but, you know, look at the market over that, you know, from December 18 till now. Disney's been a pretty poor stock on any metric. And so what's strange is, you know, the company has – not returned our phone calls. They don't return our emails. They don't take our questions on conference calls. They don't allow us to attend analyst meetings where every other investor and analyst who does my job is allowed to attend. They've literally just cut off all access. I mean, in fact, his Twitter account is public and he's denying access to me on Twitter. It's just, you know, it's very bizarre behavior from a company that, you know, traditionally upholds themselves to the highest um, standards. It's just been strange that um, they've done this. It doesn't make any sense. The reality is that it doesn't fix the fact that they've got real problems. And we think, you know, we think there's ways to fix it if we were Disney. You know, we think strategically they need to reposition ESPN and they need to diversify their business. I mean, you know, if you think back to 1995, uh, probably not too long before you and I started talking, um, you know, they went out and they bought Cap City's ABC, which actually got them ESPN. That was a massive change for Disney. I'm surprised they're not looking for something to dramatically alter their business mix today, especially given how good their movie business has been. Well, what moves the needle on Disney? It's almost like a, a an iPhone uh, embarrassment of riches things with Apple. It's become so successful, ESPN, that it's become the lion's share of, of profit and profit margin at the company. How do you – I mean it's an innovator's dilemma. How do you disrupt that uh, and how do you um, replace that with something else that's going to move the needle? After all, this is an enormous company. Well, look, we, we've been – highly critical of them continuing to sell as much content as they did to Netflix. And so we like the move to go direct that they announced a couple of weeks ago in concept. I think the the problem with what they're doing is that they're thinking of it in a very traditional um, world, meaning they're still thinking in the world of silos. They're thinking in a world of Disney Channel, ESPN, ABC, they're not thinking of in what I think of as the new bundle. So the new bundle is not channels that get aggregated. The new bundle is content. And so look at the way uh, Netflix bundles all different forms of content. You've got Seinfeld to Disney content to DreamWorks content to, you know, to Ozarks to Orange is the New Black. I mean, there's just a, an array of all different forms of content. 
Disney, though, is trying to create direct-to-consumer services where there's going to be Hulu for the ABC and the freeform content. There's going to be an ESPN add-on, not even the good stuff like Monday Night Football and NBA, but it's going to be a kind of tertiary game over-the-top service. Then there's going to be a Disney Channel service that launches in two years, and they're not sure what they're going to do with Marvel or Lucasfilms. They should be building a bundle. They should be doing exactly what Netflix is doing and building a robust bundle of all of their content. Now, it's expensive. It would cost them a lot more money and be a far riskier strategy. But Bob Iger and Disney should be playing for the next 20 or 30 years, not trying to figure out how they kind of have their cake and eat it, too, so that they don't disappoint Wall Street in the next 12 to 18 months. They're playing the Wall Street game. They're not playing the strategic you know, go for the kill over the next 10 year game. How do you even picture out the next 10 years? I mean, could anybody 10 years ago have told you that Facebook today would be worth, what is it, $488 billion compared to Disney's $157 billion, uh, which is just inconceivable, right? Robin, it's pretty crazy, right, that Apple could buy Disney for cash. You know, I, I don't think 10 years ago, if I had said that to you, you would have laughed at me for sure. And then, and then another thing, like it, it, it must have blindsided you when AT and T made this very rich offer for Time Warner, which owns HBO, the very popular and indispensable HBO, which people get on HBO Direct. Um, and it seems like they might throw in some things for free with the wireless bundle. Maybe the bundle is moving away from cable to a whole different universe, and now, and now Disney's orphaned, where you want them to focus on you know, right-sizing maybe the ESPN cost structure. Maybe there's a whole other existential dilemma for them. Do they need to shack up with a Verizon? Well, think about it. The bundle is also being redefined. It's not just about video content. For Amazon, it's it's two-day shipping. It's discounts at Whole Foods starting on Monday. It's um, video content, music. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's a complete redefinition of what a bundle is. And so... You know, for Amazon, you know, I think if there's anyone that Disney should be scared about, you said, what is Disney going to look like in 10 years? Well, or ESPN for that matter. Imagine waking up in 2022 and you go to watch Monday Night Football and it's only available on Amazon because that contract ends in a few years. And I think Amazon's going to have, you know, we'll, we'll have substantially more subscribers in the U.S., let alone globally, than ESPN. If Amazon or Apple, you know, pick any of these large tech companies which have, you know, far bigger pocketbooks, if they want Monday Night Football, it's theirs for the taking. You know, Disney with declining subscribers and softening advertising isn't in a position to go from two billion for Monday Night Football to two and a half, three or three and a half billion. Whereas a company like Amazon or Apple could easily spend $3 billion a year, if not more. And so I think the risk is is that the, the one thing that's holding the TV bundle together, and certainly the one thing that supports ESPN, which is football, they don't have a lot of firepower to keep those rights. So they're in a very, very precarious position as we think out over the next few years. And again, that goes back to why we think Disney has to diversify away from cable networks, because ESPN is in deep, deep trouble as you look out over the next five to 10 years. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzai. We're talking to BTIG's Rich Greenfield, veteran Wall Street media and tech analyst. Um, step back and talk to me about Apple, which is, after all, the biggest company in the world by market capitalization, recently announced that it wants to re-up its 
uh, content building efforts by infusing a billion dollars into it, which is, uh, you know, like a nickel that you find in, in, uh, <laughs> the couch if you're the CEO of Apple. Um, they are the ones that, that have the, the, the device that's everybody's that everybody's passionate about that everybody's binging Netflix on whether it's an iPad or an iPod you know an iPhone Plus. Um, how do you interpolate their plans into this? Like you said, they could buy Disney for chump change. Uh, they do have uh, shared DNA with Steve Jobs and Pixar and the repressment of the late of the late nineties, and then ultimately selling Pixar. Uh, what do you think about that? Look, Disney could certainly buy or be bought by Apple. I think the problem that you run into is if you're Tim Cook, if you're Eddie Q, why would you want to be shackled to the legacy cable bundle? I mean, we just spent the last 10 minutes talking about all the problems of the big bundle. It prevents you from going over the top with your content. Subscribers are in decline. It's just it, it really entangles you in this ecosystem. Compare that to a Netflix, which has a clean slate, no entanglements, can do whatever they want, not just here, but all over the globe. I mean, Disney made this big announcement about going direct to consumer. First of all, they can't even do it for two years because of their entanglements, but they can't even do it globally because they have entanglements all over the world that make that difficult and would make it a much, much longer term process. And so for Apple, why do you want to be kind of hamstrung by the legacy challenges uh, of the ecosystem. And, you know, the response you could say, Robin, is, well, they would get Marvel and Lucas and Pixar, Disney, like they would get the world's most incredible content. And the answer is sure. But what I think Netflix has actually started to prove is that if you want to be a major player in Hollywood, all it takes is money. It re really, you know, obviously it takes the skill of the person picking and the team that you build. And Ted Sarandos gets should get a lot of credit for that. But at the end of the day, if you want to put serious money to work and go out and hire the best talent and the best scripts and writers and all of that, it just takes money. And four years and a half, four and a half years ago, there was no house of cards. And now there's more great stuff to watch on Netflix than any one person can consume. And so I think it makes probably a lot more sense for Apple, since they have this incredible balance sheet, to do a straight build from scratch. Therefore, no entanglements. Go out and hire the best writers. And look, they just hired two of the top TV production executives in the game right now uh, from Sony. They're building that team out. And I think they're going to, you know, you mentioned the billion dollar number. You know, Netflix used to spend a billion dollars on original programming too. And now they're spending, you know, 8 billion on, you know, acquired and original programming. And so I think this is literally a sign that Apple is not going to go out and buy Disney or save Disney. This is going to be, Apple's going to be yet another disruptor putting even more pressure on the legacy bundle that we've already seen come from the Netflixes and the Amazons. Apple's got the balance sheet and they're going to start to replicate it on a global basis. Hmm. Rich, you recently wrote, you, you singled out Disney. You said, when historians look back on who is to blame for the rise of Netflix, we believe they will focus their attention on Disney under the leadership of Bob Iger, the CEO. Disney has sold Netflix more content across film and TV than any other company, with Netflix now a monster that we believe has achieved escape velocity. But why isn't the blame more diffuse? Uh, you know, I, I recall my first experience with Netflix maybe – you know, 10, 12 years ago was ordering DVDs. If I want to write, you know, watch foreign films or indie films or blockbusters, why did the studios writ large, all of these guys, I'm talking Universal, I'm talking Warner Brothers, I'm talking, why did they do Netflix any favors? They could have just posted all of their content 
to proprietary networks. The infrastructure was there. The broadband was there. They could have just had, you know, you put the inconvenience on the customer to have uh, 10 logins. Why did anybody do Netflix favors? So if you look back, I mean, it, that's a, it's really a fair point. You, you know, you can't lay all the blame on on Disney. Um, you know, I think Disney's given them some of the most iconic content. But the the real perpetrator that started this was actually Stars. So Stars had a early stage streaming service that you probably never heard of, but it was called Vango. Uh, Vango was losing fifty or sixty million. Basically, Stars tried to transform from a pay channel, you know, like you subscribe to Stars as an add-on to your cable system. They tried to transform into an over-the-top company like a Netflix, and they were losing ballpark if memory serves something like sixty or seventy million dollars a year. And this guy Reed Hastings comes along and says, "You know what? Don't do that. We'll do it for you. Give us those, sublicense us those rights." And that was basically rights to stream in the pay window, pay TV window, to stream Disney, um, Disney content along with Sony content, um, and you know that contract essentially propelled. Netflix as the start, because all of a sudden stars went from losing 70 million to I think Netflix paid them like 50, 60, 70 million dollars. So it was a huge positive swing for stars. There was nothing in their contract from Disney that blocked sub licensing of the digital rights. It just I'm assuming wasn't something people had really thought about. Stars did it to basically make money. And in the end, what it actually did was it launched Netflix into the streaming game when they had no access to rights. And so in some ways, it was a quirk of the way contracts were written. And obviously, Netflix then used that to go out and pay for lots of other forms of content. And, you know, the rest is history. But in many ways, Stars was actually the first mistake that was ever made because it basically started this streaming business for Netflix that never otherwise would have gotten off the ground. When we look at the legacy networks writ large, um, you know, who's watching network television right now? We saw a ridiculous stat that millennials think it's ridiculous that you could buy a digital antenna in stores and get three networks for free. They're like, wow, seriously, you can do this? Uh, but I don't I don't know who watches uh, The Big Bang Theory. I don't know who watches primetime ABC. Well, look, it's like the last thing, of, you know. Yeah. Look, there's still a lot of viewership. It's just declining. And, you know, look, it's it's not just, you know, it's declining because why watch live, right? I mean, almost everything that you could watch on linear TV, you can watch later. You know, maybe not football on Sundays, but the vast majority of the content shows up later someplace else. Whether we're talking Netflix or Amazon or Hulu, the, the need to watch something live tonight really decreases. And I think it's because there was a strategic a fundamental strategic mistake that all of these networks made. When Mad Men came out, you remember, there no one really watched it in season one or two on AMC. And it ended up in season three going on Netflix, and everyone started to binge Mad Men. They caught up on seasons one and two, um, and they started watching live. Now, remember, back then, there wasn't a lot of other shows to binge, and so the view that a lot of the networks took was, oh, my God, binging actually drives live. And, you know, they got really excited. They saw the kind of the same thing with Breaking Bad, that people were catching up and then starting to watch live. But here comes the problem, Robin, is that when there's so much great content to binge, when you can binge all of Friends, all of the Wonder Years, 
all of Breaking Bad, all of Walking Dead, you know, when there's literally just hundreds upon hundreds of series with hundreds of episodes each that you can binge, binging doesn't drive live. Binging actually drives more binging. And so you binge a show, you catch up to the current time. Then if there's no new episodes available or new episodes are airing live on TV, you just binge something else until all of that season becomes available six, nine, 12 months later. You don't care. There's so much else to binge. And so the, the, the problem is, is that binging has actually decreased your interest in watching live rather than helped it. And it's been a, a, a real strategic mistake, not to mention it's totally altered your desire to deal with advertising. I mean, especially I think the younger demographics, the idea of watching 18 to 20 minutes of advertising an hour and waiting a week between episodes seems like, you know, so antiquated it's beyond belief, right? So is it antiquated and anachronistic of me to ask you about the movie theater business right now? <laughs> I mean, that's that's no, one where, I mean, look, uh, you know, look, we're getting I, all actually, this I, we're getting all this I, I, consternation I, about a $10 a month binge all you watch. I mean, terrible numbers out of AMC. This used to be gravy for a company like AMC, uh, for a company like Disney or Warner Brothers. You take your kids out to a big blockbuster film release, spend a lot of money on popcorn and nachos and Haribo bears. And I, I just. You know, I might go to one film as a dad now, even. I might go to one movie theater film every five years. First of all, you know, I think you got to separate movie theaters and movie studios. So the 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 well, movie no, studio. They're, they're tied after all because of the whole theatrical experience. I mean, they're not willing to release something. I mean, how willing is Disney, for example, if I want to rest the bone from the dog's mouth? You have a blockbuster, say a Pixar film come out, uh, you know, Toy yep. Story 5, let's say theoretically. What are they going to do? Offer it up to me $30 direct on demand from, from Disney's download service? I mean, what's the value proposition to them? They're still entrenched in the old distribution model. They are. I'm just getting at the point that if I'm Regal, you know, a small change in attendance for Regal, because not only is the company levered, meaning they have a lot of debt relative to their cash flow, but on top of that, most of their, you know, so much of their revenue that they make or earnings comes from popcorn concession sales, that small changes in attendance are very problematic for the theater industry. For the movie studios, look, I think the question is, does it make sense that they rely so heavily on the theaters? You know, to your point, look, we all are walking around with movie theaters or, you know, we're all walking around with movie screens in our pockets called our phones. Those phones or those screens keep getting more beautiful and bigger. They seamlessly connect to our TVs and Chromecast or AirPlay or whatever you want to call it. But like the connection to bigger screens is super simple and fluid. And yet try to explain to a millennials, heck, try to explain to one of your friends why something that comes out in the theater, you have to wait, you know, months to see it at home. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense that you have to go out to the theater to see a movie. And yeah, maybe for the big Star Wars film, it makes sense. But how many movies do you really need to see in the theaters? And there's with so much great content available at a click of a button through Netflix or Amazon or HBO or whatever. Um, I, I just think the the desire to go out to the movies especially when the price keeps getting higher and higher and the cost of popcorn is so absurdly high that I just think it, it, it decreases that interest level. And so if I'm a studio, I think I'm absolutely looking for ways to make content available in the home at a premium price that makes it easy and convenient for you. The problem for the theaters is they don't participate in that and don't deserve to participate in that. And so the theaters are in deep trouble. 
I think the studios are not in great shape, but I think they're in a lot better position if they create great content than the movie theater business that literally does nothing other than have real estate where you go to see a movie and overpay, overcharge you for popcorn. Hmm. Rich, tell me about Hulu. What should I know about Hulu? I don't have a Hulu lock, and it's getting a lot of buzz this year with you know, Golden Globe and, and Emmy season and their original content efforts. Do you think that's finally congealing and coming together? God, it's it's Hulu is like the there's such a huge opportunity with with Hulu. The problem is it's run by a four headed monster. To make that clear for your listeners, that's Disney, Fox, Comcast, NBC, and Time Warner. Thirty, 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 ten in terms of ownership. Um, it's a very messy ownership structure, and they've gone from being essentially next day television. So where you can watch everything that comes out next day for $8 if you want ads, $12 if you don't want ads, to now they're actually trying to do linear television channels like a subscription to Comcast, but all digitally where you pay $40 a month. Um, and on top of that, they're trying to do original programming as part of those $8 and $12 packages Um you know, such as Handmaid's Tale, which was a very well done original TV series that, as you mentioned, is up for or going to be a Emmy Awards. Which kind of hits at the point. I can't understand it. I can't wrap my head around it. It's <laughs> exactly. Like the, it's like the <laughs> exactly. FT. It's like the FT's login. It's a great newspaper, but they give me a certain number of things I can read and a metered paywall. And I just at this point we're hitting up against a new theme, which is kind of login fatigue. I mean, you're asking me now that I have to know in the back of my head in a couple of years, my kids won't be able to watch Disney content largely on Netflix. We need a separate Hulu login. I have a Spotify login. We think Amazon Prime is the bee's knees. Uh, HBO Direct is going to shack up ostensibly with, you know, it's going to be a, an AT&T thing. I have various sports logins, whether I follow the Los Angeles Lakers on NBA.com or MLB TV. I mean, at, at some point, you know, you want simplification. I like the fact, Rich, that everything, all the record labels, let's say 90% of the content I want audio-wise is united on Spotify. I know they all complain about that. I know the artists all complain about it. I just don't know how this shakes out outside of that, say, it, it, with the Hulu analogy, the four-headed beast. I mean, it's it's way too late for these guys to say, no, if you want my content, you have to come and pay me directly on my network. That was a lot of different things, but um, well, it just hits. You know, it just hits how confusing. Like I've said, the metaphor in the past, it feels like we're sipping from a massive fire hydrant right now of content. Right, that they've all gotten the binge religion, they've all gotten the original scripted content, the Handmaid's Tale, and blah 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 blah. And there's just not enough time in the day, and their market caps are hemorrhaging, and there's fear and doubt, and Amazon and Apple, and that's why I brought you on the show. What the heck is going to happen? Well, look, I think, first of all, you, you, you know, when you when you stop spending. No, you should have said you should have said, first of all, you should take a volume for that. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> first of all, you're spending 80 to 100 dollars a month. Um, may, you may even be spending well over that for your cable TV service. Uh, often, you know, if you look at your bill, you're probably paying ten dollars per box per month to rent equipment that doesn't cost anywhere near that. Uh, and it's pretty antiquated. I mean, look at your cable TV remote today versus what it looked like 10 years ago. And then look at what phone you were using 10 years ago, probably a razor versus your iPhone today. And it's pretty sad how little innovation there's been in the cable TV ecosystem over the last decade. And so 
as you stop paying or as you reduce your spend on cable television, it does free up a lot of consumer wallet share to go after all of these services. And remember, you don't have to sign up for these things for the full year. I mean, if you're a big football fan, you can sign up for Hulu for six or seven months. I mean, you know, um, Robin, you or I wanted to cancel Comcast after football season. We had to take a day off from work because we actually literally, not only do we have to spend hours on the phone telling them we're canceling, we then literally had to take our equipment, disconnect it, and walk it over to a call center. Yeah, it's prohibited. And then, and then when we wanted it back turned on, we had to take a day off from work to let the installer come. So, like, the the barrier to, or the friction in the system for legacy television was really, really high. In a virtual world, you can turn on and off any second, whenever you feel like. And so, yes, there are a lot of subscriptions, as you're pointing out, but you also don't have to be a subscriber for the full year. If you want to only be a subscriber to HBO for Game of Thrones season, lots of people do that now. Mm. It's easy. You don't even have to call up Comcast anymore. You literally just click cancel on the app on your iPhone. It takes literally a few seconds. So amid this dislocation, Rich, in the in the 10 minutes or so that I, I still have you, why then, why, when I look at Apple and Google, are Apple TV and YouTube so half-assed kind of in this competition, especially Apple TV? You would think amid that confusion and the fact that everybody has either an Android phone or an iPhone that they would pounce on this and they would simplify and unify and make it easy. Well, look, I think um, I think in some ways Apple tr was hoping to work with the legacy ecosystem. Um, you know, I think they really hoped that they were going to be partnered with the whole ecosystem. And I think what they kind of found out is that it was virtually impossible to create the product that they wanted. Um, you know, the. They wanted to put together a package of the channels you wanted, not the channels that you didn't have interested in. They wanted to change the ad. I, it was the problem is everyone is so wedded. The same reason why I said Apple's not going to buy Disney because of this legacy infrastructure problem. There's too much that there's too many rules that make it too hard. And so I think you've seen Apple pivot over the last 12 months to we're just going to go out and follow the Netflix model, the Amazon model, and build a new bundle of content and services direct to consumer and simply help destroy the legacy ecosystem rather than try to work with it. I think that's – I think it was just hoping for a long time that they could play ball with their friends in the iTunes ecosystem and then just realizing it was just impossible. What about you, Rich? How do you make a living? I know that's a hard turn, but it's always been an existential question I had. I mean, when you're entrenched at a huge sell-side firm, back in the day before all these Spitzerian regulations, you could just direct you know, good vibes to the investment banking side, or you could direct trades, you know, good calls, like why don't you put in your big trade with us at Goldman? How do you get paid right now? That's really something I'd like to know. You know, it's funny. I'm looking at the article you wrote from February 19th. 2007 called an analyst on the attack. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's really never changed. Um, you know, my job at BTIG is to literally pick buys and sells to do that. We spend a lot of time thinking about how the kind of the tectonic plates of media are moving, who's winning, who's losing. 
uh, how new companies are disrupting, whether they're public or private, but how, how all of these players are impacting the public companies that we put buys and sells on. The goal is just simply to help clients make money. If we help investors make money, big institutional investors make money, uh, that's what gets me paid. And so it, it's, you know, it sounds um, really complicated. Um, and certainly the, the, the forecasting is not simple, but the actual, what our job description is, it's, it really is quite simple of our goal is to help people make money in trading media stocks long and short. But now that all that has effectively been unbundled, and I know it's a tortured analogy here, but we're all talking about in the end getting paid for your content, even though yours is very actionable, very serviceable. It's always been a vexingly difficult thing, whether you're a an independent con- content maker like me, a journalist, you're subsidized by a big publication or a media company, or you're an analyst, you're a practitioner who's calling the ebbs and flows and, and sector picks and, and, and how you can be tactical. How to get people to pay for you versus to just look at you as a as a freebie within a bundle? I imagine it must be a huge dilemma as a as a well, look, Wall Street person. I, 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 look, I would say you know, um, you know, the, the reality is is that we're a six hundred person broker dealer. There is, you know, we're I think the fourteenth or thirteenth largest broker dealer in terms of shares traded globally. Uh, so we're not a, a small firm. This is a very large uh, firm in BTIG. And, you know, the the goal is, is if you like our research, uh, if you find our research valuable, you're going to do business more broadly with BTIG. And, you know, I know you've seen our research for a long time, but, you know, we think our research is unlike anything else out there. Uh, very unique stylistically, very thematic with a goal of making several big calls every year. Uh, and we try to be right more than we're wrong, but we certainly admit very openly when we're wrong. I just want to know when Bob Iger is going to finally return your calls. I wonder if you have to pull off like a John Cusack thing and say anything and show up outside of headquarters with an enormous boombox, you know, some sort of – we would take you guys to Camp David or something and you can finally get your two quarterly questions in. You know, as long as we get the stock right, I honestly don't care. <laughs> Rich Greenfield, you are a mensch, sir. I cannot thank you enough. Thank you for having me. This is great. Veteran Wall Street media and tech analyst Rich Greenfield is at BTIG. He's been bearish on Apple. He thinks they need to self-disrupt a little more aggressively. And I will eagerly follow your work on the Twitters and the various uh, platforms that uh, you have self-disrupted yourself through. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Full disclosure, we are on NPR One. Like us, love us. And on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. You can support this fine show on Patreon.com slash FullDRadio. We're going to take it to two broadcasts a week in 2018. Uh, you know what? Miska, Muska, Mouska Tools. Oh, toodles. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. <laughs>